I would argue that if we had this kind of standard as our societal standard, as our justice uh, system standard, it would actually help justice flourish. That's why the punishment exists, because we are taking away a life that is not ours to take away. And when the justice system unrighteously takes away an innocent life, I can't support that. Thank you for tuning in to the Aptcast, where iron sharpens iron, and then we poke each other with the pointy ends. <laughs> I am one of your hosts, Wes, joined as always with Alex. How's it going, buddy? Hi, fam. <laughs> hey, happy people. Thank you for joining us. Happy people. Where did you get that? Where did you come up with that? I don't remember. I got it off of a show or an audiobook I listened to somewhere. It's not original. Maybe Mr. Rogers? Yeah, <laughs> good deal. Uh, sorry, I was absent uh, last week, but from what I heard, you pretty well nailed it uh, with uh, the week in review of politics. Alex, great uh, episode last week. Thank you, thank you. With uh, the the debacle in Iowa and the State of the Union, and then r- after you recorded it, uh, Trump finished the trifecta of win with uh, an acquittal in the Senate. Well, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if it was a trifecta of win. Uh, yes, he he dominated in the Iowa Republican caucus, but there wasn't really a legitimate candidate opposing him in the Republican <laughs> Iowa caucus. Uh, there was there was somebody, and I haven't found any evidence or proof of this, but there was somebody talking about him uh, winning the Democrat caucus, and it may have just been a joke, but regarding how terrible and appallingly disastrous the whole thing was but somebody was actually talking about him getting votes in the democratic caucus that's hilarious Uh, but the state of the union address was you know your typical politician uh self-padding of the back speech it was a masterful political theater yeah the acquittal the, the acquittal was definitely a nice topping of the week for him Oh, God, but he then went on and ranted at the National Prayer Breakfast, which is supposed to be a non-political event, calling out Pelosi and the Democrats. And I was just like, really, dude? It's just not necessary. You won. Let it go. That's, that's the most Trump thing that he could have done, yeah, isn't it? it's the most Trump thing he could have done. <laughs> oh, good. Well, uh, if you enjoy this uh, banter back and forth, you can catch us on Facebook, facebook.com slash aptpodcast uh, or online share the uh, the episodes there. Uh, catch us on your favorite podcast catcher. And uh, for those who have liked the page, oh, we've got a few more likes. Uh, it's I mean, it's been two weeks, so you know, they've kind of stacked up on us. Uh, we'd like to recognize the people who like us. Uh, starting off with Nikki Nekula. Uh, thank you, sir. Chris Guin, Samantha Gallo, Adrian Luck, uh, Courtney Mosley, John Metcalf, Joe Augusta, uh, Dustin Armstrong, uh, Greg Matthews, Michael Rohr, uh, Scott Robertson, Stacy Boatwright, Brian Green, Andrew Wolf, and Robert Sims, or as the layman call him, Bob Sims, everybody. So thank you guys for liking the show. Uh, definitely like our page, leave a review. We'll read it out uh, on a future episode and share with your friends. So here we are. Again, Alex, getting ready for a topic that we've kind of had on deck for a while, uh, and uh, it just so happens that after the um, uh, two-part series we did on life, liberty, and protection, uh, a friend of mine, also with the the Layman's Cup podcast, uh, Sean Lee, reached out and said, hey, after this, you guys should totally do the death penalty. And me and you have been talking about it for months, uh, back and oh, forth. Yeah. And uh, I was like, you know what? Yeah, we, we spent two weeks talking about protecting life. That's next. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and talk about how the government takes life. 
uh, I think that would be a good little thing. Sorry we weren't able to get it going last week, but uh, issue, technical issues have been resolved. Uh, that so. wonderful MacBook of yours. Well, it's it, it's got some age to it. You know, it's it's got character. Uh, <laughs> it's a crap book. Forget the age. Oh, <laughs> I guess Apple's not going to sponsor this show anytime soon. Yeah, all the Mac and Apple fanboys are going to be bashing on me now. That's fine. They've got me for the, for the Apple. They've got you for the Android. They've got me for biblical soteriology and theology. They've got you for, you know, other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. No, I use Android phones because the file system is accessible like a computer. Yeah. Not because I, I hate iOS. I do hate iOS, but that's not why I don't use it. Uh, I absolutely adore iOS in the iPad Pro. Uh, I use that like crazy for productivity when I don't need a laptop or a desktop. Yeah, it's got some really good uh, intuitive uh, user interface. Yeah, and the Apple Pencil yeah. pen uh, <laughs> really makes it a nice interface. Let's let's jump into today's topic with the death penalty. Let's. And uh, th- there there is uh, some some disagreement uh, among the co-host here, so uh, our listeners can can Shocker. pick. Yeah. Um, now, how would you see the disagreement, Alex, from from your perspective? Uh, I would see it more as a disagreement on our existing governments ability and authority to apply the death penalty over any disagreement on the on the core morals and biblical perspective behind our 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 various positions i think that's fair yeah the uh, we we both would agree that the bible provides the authority for the death penalty but uh, i would see uh, this as an application that would be relevant for even today's government, whereas uh, you would see it as, um, in a in a way that our government now is so bad with the application. There's been so many uh, instances of proven um, false uh, guilt that's been laid upon people. There have been too many people who have been uh, executed by the state wrongly as such that would negate that authority to them. Would that be an accurate statement? Yes. Okay, and you're wrong. But... <laughs> <laughs> so, so so, let's get into that. So, so let's start with the uh, authority part of it. So, And I think even to, to the application, uh, I think it's fair to say that, that we can agree that um, nations that employ the death penalty are not perfect. So I think there's probably even a good bit of agreement on, on that point. But um, when it comes to the authority itself, so, so how would you see the failure of the, the current American government's uh, application of the death penalty as eroding their authority to execute it? Yeah, so perfect example popped, on my timeline, popped up on my timeline last week after our second attempt to record the show last week. And it was a story about a young boy. I think he was 12 or 13 years old, little black boy in the Carolinas back in the early 1900s. Uh, it's like 1912, 1920s, early 1930s. It was a long time ago. Uh, but someone was murdered and dumped near his home. And he was arrested. He was tried and convicted. And the entire process just absolutely ignored anything remotely related to due process. Uh, He was a minor, obviously, by several years. His family was not allowed to be present when he was being interviewed. Uh, He was not allowed counsel during several hearings. Uh, His family was not allowed to be present during the trial. Uh, he was held in isolation for oh it was it it wasn't even years it was months before he was executed and it was just the most obviously unconstitutional trial you could imagine right yeah and this is 
many, many decades after the Civil War is over and black people are supposed to have rights just like anyone else. So several decades later, I don't know how recent it was, may have been in the 90s, maybe more recent than that, a judge reviewed the case and dismissed it as him not having had anything remotely resembling a fair trial, yeah. right? Uh, overturned his convention, you know, post-mortem. And that does him no good because he's been dead for 70 years, yeah. 80 years, however long. But whether he was guilty or not, he had no fair trial. And the evidence, even considering the cultural attitude of the day, presumption of guilt for certain people, there was no evidence that he was guilty of the crime other than the fact that the person was dead you know, in the woods quarter mile from his house. There was evidence came up later that another person had killed the individual and dumped them there. Uh, it, it, there's all kinds of cultural and social justice accusations that it was to blame a black person, but it was just dumping them there to frame someone else for the murder to, so that they could get away with it. Right. It, it didn't, there's no evidence it really had anything to do with ethnicity of the person who was being blamed so the other person could get away with it. But the, the case itself is a perfect example of how our justice system is very, uh, I don't really know how to put it. It's, it's very not immoral. It's, it's not just, it's kind of ironic to call it a justice system because a rich person can get off with murder. Uh, Ted Kennedy was drunk, wrecked a car, and left the woman in his car to drown yeah. while he went off and sobered up. And there was never anything that happened to him, right? Uh, and I know people will call this a conspiracy theory, but the Clintons have a trail of bodies in the 50s long behind their political lives. Uh, one of them was a person people have attested was going to uh, be a witness against them for corruption who committed suicide by two shots to the back of the head. <laughs> so when, when people talk about uh, Hillary Clinton opponents uh, committing suicide with two shots to the back of the head, it, it's only half joking because someone, I forget the name of the guy, uh, was ruled a suicide with two shots to the back of the head. Oh, yeah. I, Happens all the time. I'm not really sure how that's possible, right? So, um, and, and that's just extreme cases, right? In general, there have been studies, and I, I will grant that the particular organizations running these studies are anti-death penalty in the first place, so I don't have counterpoint information to confirm or deny the accuracy of their research. But there are pretty well-accepted studies that show as many as 1 in 25 people convicted of capital crimes and executed by the state are innocent. 1 in 25 people. And since 1972, there have been 167 people executed that were later exonerated with additional facts and evidence. Mm -hmm. So of the couple, three or 4,000 people who've been executed by the federal government since 1972, 167 of them, uh, almost 2%, I think it's one and a half percent were proven innocent and wow. the data that's extrapolated by these people shows that as much as two and a half percent one in 25 people no that's not right two and a half percent would be um closer to four percent yeah four percent uh i don't know why i was thinking two and a half percent um four percent of people killed by the state, you know, more than twice as many as they know factually 
were exonerated by evidence. Uh, so 400 people in the last 40 plus years have been killed by the state, but are innocent. Yeah. And you know, one people might say, ah, oh, one in 25. It's not even five percent. It's it's not a big deal. At what point is it a big deal? You know, by what standard are you yeah. deciding it's not a big deal that 400 people have been murdered unrighteously by the state? So, whereas I think, and we'll get into this more later in the podcast, but whereas I think we would both agree that the the government has the authority, biblically and morally, to punish crime worthy of the death penalty with capital punishment, I I see too many flaws in our system to support our government applying the death penalty. I think that's a fair uh, on argument. top of the fact that our legal review system, uh, the, you know, the number of uh, appeals a person can have in their lifetime make uh, death penalty conviction as much as, I think it's two and a half. It may be 20 times. I think it's two and a half times more expensive than giving them life without the possibility of parole and them still going through all the review process, uh, the appeals process for that. So if if it's a crime that's absolutely necessarily reflects the uh, punishment being execution, then sure, we should consider it. But a single murder, especially a murder whose conviction is based on circumstantial evidence and questionable evidence and hearsay or uh, verbal evidence with no hard facts proving it, there's too much historical proof in our justice system that innocent people are put to death for crimes that they actually didn't commit. So uh, it's a fun, fun fact of our legal justice system that uh, people are put in jail and killed for crimes they didn't commit. And that that's on top of the overall justice system's propensity for uh, cultural and ethnic misrepresentation in convictions and in incarceration rates. Yeah. Which, you know, that's not really part of the topic, but it, it, it the, the fact that, uh, and this is kind of tangential to my point, the fact that blacks represent exponentially more people convicted of drug-related crimes and incarcerated for drug-related crimes and have, on average, longer incarceration periods than other ethnicities, while white people use drugs more than they do, you know, at a higher percentage rate relative to the population yeah. of each. Uh, you know, facts like that just reinforce my idea that our government should not be responsible for applying a death penalty for crimes. Uh, it, it doesn't have the moral authority. It doesn't have the legal consistency, the uh, consistent application of justice, regardless of ethnicity, uh, you know, wealth, uh, power of the person. Yeah. I, I, I just don't trust them to apply it evenly. And if they're not going to apply it evenly, I don't think they should apply it at all. Okay. So so let's talk about the that 4% number um, since, what, 1970, you said? Since 1972. Since 72. So since then, we've seen an explosion in the progress uh, in areas like forensic um, discovery, right? Using DNA evidence and, and the like to uh, help either affirm or overturn uh, such convictions. But my question is, in that study, would it, uh, the those convictions, at the time of the convictions, were they in accordance with the evidence that was available at the time, or is it more, like you say, just purely circumstantial evidence? It, it, were there no witnesses? And, and really you have an underlying you know, injustice being done in the, the process itself. Um, it's kind of a mix. So the, the legal system only has to apply reasonableness 
of their guilt, right? Right. Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, did they commit the crime? And circumstantial evidence. So, for example, the shooting at the Galleria, Thanksgiving of 2018, yep. right? If I had been in the mall, if I had pulled my gun, if I had chosen to fire it in self-defense against someone in that altercation, without finding the bullet that shot the person, you know, nobody mm -hmm. ended up dying, thankfully, but let's say yeah. someone had died. If without finding the bullet that shot the person, uh, the video evidence could show that I fired in the direction of the person who was hit. If uh, a medical examiner determines that it was a nine millimeter bullet, hollow point bullet that killed the person. Right. And I'm using nine millimeter hollow points in my gun. They don't find the bullet that actually killed the person with blood on the casing and whatnot. Sure. I could be convicted of a crime someone else committed, right? Even with yeah. modern technology. So circumstantial evidence is more than enough to convict a person. Okay. Even by the technological advancements of today's world. Now, the likelihood of the scenario I just described is almost none. Yep. All right. They would search for that bullet until they found it. There, there's almost no possibility whatsoever that they would not find the bullet. But let's say they didn't. Right. All right. I'm there. I fired. I could be convicted of manslaughter or homicide or whatever within the rules of Alabama law mm -hmm. for killing someone if they determine my bullet's the person that killed someone and not the guilty person who was part of the original altercation. That kind of valid but only circumstantial evidence is what was used to convict most of the people who were convicted. Okay. And it, some of them, it was a cultural lack of effort to dig deeper. It was, it, you know, it was obviously this person, they had, they got in a fight with the person and later the person was found shot dead and they had a gun that matched the caliber the person was shot with. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, other cases, it was genetic testing and things of that nature, but not in all cases, right? Uh, some of them, it was just presumed they had the right person, so they stopped investigating and searching for to you know confirmation bias kind of thing. Uh, same thing you have in the scientific fields of study, where you you find a result that fits the evidence, and you you decide to stop looking instead of trying to prove a null hypothesis that something else is actually what's going on. So in your example uh, of the gallery shooting, all of that would be seeing that you have uh, a nine millimeter uh, hollow point round, but not looking at everybody else who was there who fired a shot to see what their calibers were to compare it and their angle of trajectory in relation to the victim. Well, even so... For, for most of the cases of false guilt verdicts, yes, that would be the case. But what I was describing could even be with modern technology, with multiple camera angles, mm -hmm. someone determining my shot was actually more likely to hit the person than the shot of the person who actually shot them on purpose, right? Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, mine was a little more specific than that, but yeah, that would be it. So if they, if they see the video evidence of me shooting some shooting in the direction of someone who got shot and killed and, uh, I was shooting at the person who was shooting them, uh, it just happened to be lined up so that I was shooting in the general direction of the other person. Right. Uh, and there's not an angle to show they were, you know, 10 or 15 degrees off of my shot angle instead of me shooting them. And there's no video to show the other person shooting. That's the kind of scenario where you have the circumstantial evidence that reaches convictions of these people. But that's, that's, that's a very analogy heavy representation of these, right? That, sure, that's not sure. what happened in all these cases, but, uh, some of them later genetic testing found that, you know, people who were convicted of rapes and murders were not the people who raped them. So obviously they weren't likely the fact that they weren't the one that raped them makes their conviction, uh, easily overturnable. But yeah, I, that's, 
I, I, I was yeah. kind of coming from a, a perspective of, of establishing that, um, or, or at least hoping to establish that different societies uh, have different abilities to prove guilt, right? So technology over the last 50 years has certainly improved in ballistics, in DNA testing, and, and, and the like, uh, so that, you know, in the 60s, right, there, there wasn't the resources that we have today. Now, granted, even by today's technology, uh, or even with today's technology, uh, it's still not a guarantee, but it was even less of a guarantee before today's technology. And if we move further and further back, uh, this is ultimately where I was going to go and, and kind of pressing you for uh, some consistency here. How uh, effective or um, just do you think the Roman system was back in, I don't know, the time that Paul wrote? <laughs> uh, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Relative to us. If, if, so there... I mean, take take Jesus for example, right? Yeah. It was based on eyewitness testimony, no physical evidence whatsoever, and the admission or denial of the person being accused of being guilty, uh, and not even Jesus' death. Take the adulterous woman, right? Right. The the Pharisees brought her before Jesus, wanting him to convict her of adultery so they could stone her and catch him you know, being ungodly and sinful. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's often missed in that particular parable or you know that particular scene is that if they caught her in the act, her partner was guilty of adultery too and would be there with her being stoned, right? Should, it should have been, be yeah. Just her. Yeah. So, uh, and that, that kind of thing was not uncommon then, like it was not uncommon... Uh, in early uh, American colonial times with adulterers. Right. So uh, we are far more capable of applying our laws now than they were back then. And even then, the authority was given to the state to convict and apply justice. But even then, there were caveats in the uh, approval, right? You sure. Know, Paul never contradicted Jesus never contradicted Old Testament authority to uh, apply capital punishment for crimes worthy of capital punishment but they also pretty heavily bashed the state for unjust application of their authority oh sure and that's where I get my position on American authority over capital punishment so would you say then that um, a more biblical response is not to abolish the death penalty, but call for a more consistent and uh, accurate application of it? Oh, absolutely. If if I thought our country could apply it judiciously, morally, biblically, with a with a common standard applied to all, no matter their wealth or their uh, mm -hmm. ethnicity or their cultural background, uh, I would one hundred percent support. You know, continued in statement of the death penalty and application of the death penalty. I don't think our society is capable of that kind of objective application, which is why I, I oppose it. So in, in that vein, how do you square that position with Paul's statement about government more broadly in his letter to the Romans? So we're talking specifically about Roman government, but more broadly government in general. Uh, when he speaks of the government, he says that uh, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So I have no objection to that, right? Okay. If, if the government is applying justice to the wrongdoer, I'm good with that. But there is mountains of evidence of our justice system, I use that term loosely, not applying justice. It is applying a, a moral relative justice, which is not justice at all, right? Well, sure, but this this was in a time, and, and this was in a time where we'll both admit that justice was not being administrated properly. Absolutely, and Paul spent years in prison for... Uh, cultural offenses against the Jews, yeah. right? 
So even he accepted that there was effects, you know, cause and effect. Uh, there were things that would occur when he followed Jesus, Jesus's command uh, to spread the gospel. But even within that, I, I do not see a conflict morally or biblically in my opposing the application of the death penalty. If someone murders, absolutely put them in jail, toss the, you know, lock the door, toss the key away, leave them there for the rest of their life. But if we are going to end a life, mm-hmm. it better be biblically proven, right? Okay. Not come back later and find out, oh, no, the person was innocent, and we, we just misapplied uh, the rule of law. So, for example, one of the cases, uh, a man named Cameron Willingham in Texas was convicted of arson in 1992, executed in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh Several national arson experts have concluded the original investigation of Williams' case was flawed, and it was totally possible that the fire was accidental, not caused intentionally by anyone, much less by him. Mm -hmm. And one of those experts was actually quoted saying, there's nothing to suggest any reasonable arson investigator to any reasonable arson investigator that this was an arson fire. It was just a fire. And then another person said, it made me sick to think this guy was executed based on this investigation. They executed this guy, and they've just got no idea, at least not scientifically, if he set the fire or if the fire was even intentionally set. Yeah. So the man was executed for an arson fire that resulted in the death of other people that the experts say wasn't even necessarily arson, much less arson perpetrated by him right so uh, you know even uh even paul was released when he was falsely accused and brought before the roman government Mm -hmm. when there was no reason for him to be imprisoned right but he also didn't, didn't he also not subject himself to that unjust imprisonment he didn't look at rome and say this is wrong, therefore you shouldn't do it. He subjected himself to that injustice, knowing that it was an injustice. Oh, if someone is convicted wrongly, but is convicted, follow the legal system, right? Okay. My argument is philosophical, right? It It is a position of wanting to change our system, either for more accurate application of the law, or changing of the law to not take innocent life right we we our court system is so dependent on strictly following rules and regulations and precedent that it it doesn't have the the people at the top making those decisions don't have the freedom of thought to recognize something is unjust something doesn't make sense and apply common sense over the law because the law is as flawed as any other human creation, right? Uh, or the, the civil and criminal law of the United States, not the law of God. Right. Uh, the, the law is as flawed as any other human creation. So if a person cannot apply their own reasonable logic and say, this just doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter what the law says. I don't trust that system, right? And I'm going to oppose it. Now, if it was applied to me, I may speak up in opposition to it, but I'm going to sit. I mean, Paul Paul did not sit calmly and refute the charges against him, right? Sure. He refuted the charges against him. He just submitted to the state and accepted from the state that he, they had the authority over him. So th- th- there's a difference here between how you're positioning the scenario and what I'm actually saying. Uh, I, I wholly agree with Paul's attitude of submission to the state's authority, but I wholly agree with his proclaiming his innocence of any actual wrongdoing. Sure. Uh, and I think that our state is so big with such a large machine of the legal system 
that it should not have authority to kill someone, preferably at all. But if they're going to have it, it better be a whole lot stricter uh, standard of evidence to apply a death penalty than what we have had over the last four or five decades okay. or in longer. So we, we've talked a little bit a little bit about the authority issue, but you've brought up a, a really good point about the standard of guilt. And if we look in, for example, Deuteronomy 19, and I, let's stop for a second. I think it'd be fair to say that I'm, I'm probably a bit more uh, of a theonomist than you are as far as applying biblical law in society. Would you say that's accurate? In the real world, yes. Okay. In, in a theoretical <laughs> perfect world, I'd be right there with you. Right? Okay. I, I look at the real world and understand that a theonomy is not going to result in a government that we would approve of. It, it's going to slide into the autocratic authoritarian stuff we see resulting from the Constitution that was supposed to prevent that. Uh, so, yes, real-world application, I would say you are much more of a theonomist than I am. Theoretical, best-case scenario, I would be right there with you, but mm -hmm. Uh, since we don't have the uh, fantasy land perfect world yet until Christ's kingdom uh, on earth, since we don't have that, I prefer to stick to what we do have, and that is constitutional standards. Okay. All right. Applying moral law within the constitutional framework. Okay. So... So we'll get to the constitutional application here in a second, but if we look in Deuteronomy chapter 19, Moses says clearly, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two, or th two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Period. Yep. So we're talking two, maybe three independent lines of testimony. Right. So yep. to, to use your example, if the camera actually sees you fire the gun and sees the other person get hit, that would count as a witness or yes. a, a, a person who steps forward and says, I saw Alex shoot this person and they died. That that kind of thing. So we're talking about that type of scenario. That's all that's required biblically is, is correct. Two, two or three witnesses coming forward and testifying to guilt. Correct. The caveat there is that first witness, the technology exists to prove from that witness's perspective the, the, the facts, the science, the data that I did not commit the crime, right? Mm -hmm. That the capability is there, uh, that the capability was not utilized completely yeah. if it is because of the inability to apply it completely then it's a coin toss as to whether it's reasonable to apply that witness or uh, should it abstain. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I look at it as, you know, a, a lie of omission, right? If a person was giving testimony, did they see it? Did they know it happened? Or did they just conclude, did they extrapolate that something happened based on the partial information they have, right? Right. Uh, this person was there at their house. I heard them yelling. I heard a gunshot. They murdered the person. They're outside on the street. They hear the stuff going on in the house. They didn't witness the murder, right? Sure. They can only they can only apply the the information they have. The applying that sort of limited information to facts as a witness in the case uh, would leave uh, the so the materials in the round itself the bullet, mm -hmm. the uh, striations from the rifling on the gun and biological material from the person who was shot all affect whether it is validly confirmed that a certain bullet killed a person yep. or whether it's just inferred based on the circumstantial evidence that's available, right? So... I consider that to be in the realm, not necessarily a lie of omission, but in the realm of a lie of omission to claim this 
it's proof the person committed the crime. So, yeah, if, if it is proven the person committed the crime with the data, yeah, that is and, a witness. Yeah, right. and, I'm, and I'm reading this is to say that, that a witness is connecting the dots between the accused and the crime. Not you've got A to F and the witness says, well, I can connect A to B to C. Yeah. And then somebody else comes forward and, well, I can connect C to D to E. And then a third witness comes forward and connects E to F. I'm talking yeah. completely all, all the way through. Yeah. So in that case, the, the evidence would be a witness, right? Right. But that that arson case in Texas I was describing from 1992, the technology at the time did not support A to B to C. And they used it as A to B to C as the witness to convict him and execute him. Right. Right. So we're not even using that standard. If we're using that biblical standard, then I would absolutely agree. The government has the authority and I would not oppose their authority to apply capital punishment for crimes worthy of capital punishment. I'm saying our system is flawed and is not being applied that way. There's too much adherence to the standards in the court and not reasonable logic. Oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree that it's not being applied properly. And we see that, like you pointed out, not just in the application of the death penalty, but also in due process itself being neglected. But with all that being uh, the case, um, if you're good with that being the, the standard, let's let's establish the theonomy. Let's 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 put that as the standard, uh, because and I think this is really interesting too. Moses continues um, when it comes to false witnesses, and, and this is mm-hmm. something that we have to contend with, especially in uh, situations either of, of, of heinous crimes and uh, that where the death penalty may be uh, considered. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests, and the judges who are in office in those days. In our case, it would be before the courts, right? Because we don't have priests uh, right. in the government. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the false wit- or if the witness is a false witness, he is a- and is accused as his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. And, and that's a long way of saying if you're a false witness, a- and you do it intentionally, so, and it's found out that you're false then instead of the death penalty going to who you accuse, it's actually going to you because that's what would have happened had that person been convicted. So if that neighbor, for example, comes up and says, you know, I, I saw the murder, it happened, and then come to find out, oh, no, you didn't actually see it happen, that's a false accusation. That's a false witness. Right. So I would argue that if we had this kind of standard as our societal standard, as our justice uh, system standard, it would actually help justice flourish in that it would minimize false accusations. Uh, And and not just when it comes to capital punishment, but on down when it comes to financial reinstatement, right? If you falsely accuse somebody uh, and there's a a financial penalty associated with it, you pay it and not them, right? So it it has a trickle-down effect uh, across the board. And specifically in cases of capital punishment, think of you know the uh, people, numerous people over, throughout the decades that have been falsely accused of something like rape. Right now, rape in our society doesn't come with the death penalty. Uh, I think I would lean more towards the Bible and say that if you're convicted of rape, you should get the death penalty. Uh, and, and I think we may have some uh, disagreement there as well. But can you imagine the instances of rape accusations if the accused or I'm sorry if the accuser were to consider if this is a false accusation and I'm found out I'm the one who gets the punishment not them Mm -hmm. you see what I mean yeah I think I think it's a valid argument Uh, I see flaws in the application of it because our justice system is inconsistent right you have plea deals where the courts uh, now granted you're talking about a theoretical theonomy where we're using the biblical standard not the US court system right where 
unless we abolish the Constitution and go to a full-fledged theonomy with a leader, whatever you want to call that leader, ordained in the name of Christ, uh, we, we still have to apply the laws we do have on the books. And with the laws we do have on the books, it, it's, it's too easy to plea deal out to a much lesser conviction when it is admitted the person committed the heinous crime, whether it's murder, arson, yeah. rape, whatever, you know, it is known the person committed it, but there, there is evidence that would make it difficult to convict in trial. So they're plea dealed out or there's a huge backlog and they're, it's a first offense and they're plea dealed out. There's just so much inconsistent application of the law within our current system I don't think we should be giving our government the authority to apply death, right? Sure. Because in the process, in my reasoning behind that is not that the person deserves to live uh, or deserves doesn't deserve to be punished for the crime if we know they committed the crime or even if we suspect it beyond a reasonable doubt. My position is that since Christ's resurrection, we do not know until the moment a person dies unrepentant that they will not repent of their sins and be saved, right? Mm -hmm. If we give the authority to the state to execute someone and they take a life, what's to say that that person wouldn't have repented from sin in the future and been saved, right? Oh. And then we find out a large percentage of these people were actually innocent of the crime they were convicted of and executed for, I I find it I find it a hard position to support biblically and morally that a, a state that applies their laws inconsistently should have that authority according to scripture. So right? so so we see number one, soteriology matters even in a situation like this, because like you Absolutely. say, there's potential that they would uh, repent and and be saved later. Whereas from a Calvinist perspective, if they are among the elect, they will be saved. They will repent and, and believe prior to their death, whenever that may be. Yeah, and we should just forget that the elect is not people preordained before the foundation of the world to be <laughs> saved, to be given faith and saved. You know, the elect are not defined that way in Bible, even though Calvinists say it is. Anyway, I digress. Oh, yeah, so the soteriological soteriological perspective matters here to my position here. Well, the the other thing I was going to say, though, is you, you, ma you made the uh, uh, statement or, or phrased it, if we give the government the authority to execute people or to apply the death penalty, I would argue that we don't give the government that authority. God does. And, and I would uh, turn it and say, who are we to take that authority away? Just like, as we've talked about previously with the Second Amendment, right, that the government doesn't give us as citizens the right to protect ourselves and our property. God does. The government is there to help protect that right. Let's flip that and say that the citizens are there to recognize the government's role, the government's authority given by God, and let's call them to be more judicious in their application. Let's call them to a higher standard of justice than they currently have and that we've had since 1972 and even before. So we're saying the same thing. We're just, just saying different ways and coming to different conclusions, right? That my, my ultimate goal is that the, the government more morally, uh, objective moral consistency biblically applies justice in society. Yep. And I'm just a pessimist on this particular subject and think it's not really possible because of the humanistic uh, interaction with society and the humanistic influence on our government and our justice system. I don't think our current society is capable of reattaining that biblical objective moral justice. If we can't have that biblical standard, I say they shouldn't have the authority at all, right? Not the authority and just apply it 
inconsistently, unjustly, uh, with the hope that we reattain the biblical, uh, objectively consistent morality in application of justice. I, I, I'm not going to hope. I'm going to oppose their authority to do something and work for both ends, the consistent application of the law and justice and the end of inconsistent application of the law and justice. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think you're a pessimist so much as you just disagree with what God has to say on the matter. <laughs> Watch it now. Ah. So you think uh, God would have approved of the state's authority and right to kill John, you know, the king's right to cut off his head because his lust over the lover uh, made him decide to give her anything she wanted. Or the 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 dancer, whatever. The way you phrase the question, uh, would God approve of him having the right, the authority? Yes. Would God approve of the king abusing his authority in such a manner? No. I, I think that's, I I think that's actually a point of agreement with uh with us that we agree that the implementation, that the application, is faulty. The government mm-hmm. fails in that regard. And I think where, yeah. where we part ways is you say that because the government fails, let's take the authority away from them. And what mm-hmm. where I would go with it is because the government fails, let's call them to not fail and point our government leaders to Scripture as the standard, whether they be judges, whether they be lawmakers, whoever they may be, let's call them to the standard. And that's... that's I think that's where the the difference really is, is you go, well, we can't do it until Jesus comes back, so let's not kill anybody. And I'm saying, let's apply the law as accurately as we can, but recognize that we don't give the government authority to uh, execute in in cases of capital crimes. God does. And so we recognize Mm -hmm. that. We just call the government to be uh, more just. And when they're not, what's the result? When they're not more just, if that happens, uh, you know we see tyranny. You know we we definitely mm-hmm. uh, see that, and God will judge them. So we should not oppose tyranny in self defense of innocence. No, we we should oppose tyranny, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would not say that in a proper or a a biblical application of opposing tyranny in this case. Um, I would not say that that would include stripping capital punishment from governmental authority. Because think of it this way. Suppose you made the argument earlier, right? Suppose somebody is convicted of murder, but because we don't have the death penalty anymore, they get life in prison. It's it's less expensive, right? As you said, for, for the state itself. And they live out their days in a prison cell, uh, in a jail uh, community, right? However long that may be. Who pays for that? Uh, the taxpayer. The just taxpayers. like the taxpayer pays for all the higher costs of their defense in appeals of capital punishment. Well, and I'm with you. Let's streamline that process, right? Two, two or three witnesses without all the appeals, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, would, that would streamline that. Plea deals. The government doesn't have the authority to plea deal. It's a, if somebody's guilty, then they're guilty and administer justice. So all, all of that aside, so if we, if we have a situation where the taxpayers are paying for the living expenses of a convicted capital criminal, then who is actually paying for that crime is, in part, the victims. How mm-hmm. is that any more just? It's not more just because I think the uh, well the the payment of the person's incarceration and or uh, capital punishment, either way, having victims and society pay for that is unjust, right? That's another problem with our court system. I have a problem with. Uh, it, it, it's not a valid argument against opposing unrighteous, unbiblical application of capital punishment, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, our difference here comes from 
the the Calvinist perspective leading you to believe that God ordains all things because he predestines all things. <laughs> uh, whereas I see God's foreknowledge and the the word predestined used in scripture meaning something totally different than what Calvinists understand it to mean, meaning that were things to happen differently, we would have a different world, right? God right. has perfect knowledge. Right? God is outside of the limits of time. And a lot of people who hear outside of time hear just outside of time, him not interacting in time. That's not what I believe. God is outside, is beyond the limits of time. He is sure. not limited to existing linearly as we do. Uh, an infinite God who is omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent is capable of anything imaginable and unimaginable. He is present in all moments in space and time before and after and beyond time concurrently. He doesn't exist growing and learning. If he's omniscient, he knows everything. The, the descriptions of him, uh, being told things or, uh, weeping or being sad or rejoicing for things in the Bible. Repenting. Yeah. Uh, are, are for our understanding, right? It's not him experiencing things linearly. So from a, from a certain perspective, I, I understand and even to an extent agree with Calvinist perspective that for God to have, have that level of knowledge and presence, uh, predestination has to have, have caveats, but, that doesn't mean we don't have real choice, right? We have mm -hmm. real choice because the Bible says we do. Therefore, other possibilities, but the one set future are real possibility because we have that free choice, that God knows what will happen, that he interacts with us to bring about his glory does not change that we have real choice and it does not make it impossible for us to have faith without him giving us faith. Uh, that is a misinterpretation of scripture by Calvinists. <laughs> oh boy. So, uh, the, the position I have is based on my understanding of God's existence beyond the limits of a linear existence with our existing linearly and linear beings not having the authority to unjustly apply biblical law to a person because we don't have the godly knowledge of what would happen if we didn't unjustly apply that. Uh, Cain and Abel, right? Mm -hmm. The murder, the first murder in the Bible, you know, what would the brother who was murdered have done with his life had he not been murdered, right? That, that's, that's why the punishment exists, because we are taking away a life that is not ours to take away. Mm -hmm. And when the justice system unrighteously takes away an innocent life, I can't support that, right? And I would rather start at a point of them not having the authority to unjustly take away a life and get back to a point of them biblically applying justice than to say, well, we're at an ungodly, un unbiblical position. Let's get more towards the biblical position. No, I, I want to <laughs> cut out the unjust altogether and start from that point and get back to the biblical application of justice. That's that's my position there. And I dropped a whole bunch of bombs there. You, you did. Uh, <laughs> so feel free to respond. <laughs> now, well, actually, we're getting uh, right up to an hour, so I don't know how much longer we should go on this. But uh, I, I think this is a great uh, example of an area of, of theology where we have— uh, some some pretty drastic disagreements, but yeah. throughout this conversation it, and conversations we've had past, but specifically this one, you can see, and I think it's come out multiple times, that there is so much agreement between us, what we want, what our desires are, uh, the importance of God's standard in uh, society, that we, we see how even among these differences— we can rest as brothers on what we agree on. We can we, yes. we can we can see uh, all of that, and that's what helps foster discussions like this. So it, we we don't get to a point where 
you, we oftentimes you, you'll get uh, those. You're wrong, you sinful heretic. Right. You're you're <laughs> you're wrong because you you want to go against God's will, and you say I'm wrong because I want innocent people dead. Like it's we we don't devolve into that kind of uh, back and forth. I think we've had a really good conversation, and, and I think both of us have had an opportunity to to, to make our case and state it uh, very well. Um, and I appreciate uh, your views on this, uh, even though I disagree fun- fundamentally. Word, and that's okay. Yeah, uh, but we agree on what matters. Uh, and I think most importantly, we got to to weave soteriology back into. The discussion. Oh, yeah. We haven't talked about that since the first episode, and and eventually we're gonna have to to do probably a whole series on it, just like one episode each on each of the five points. But that'll yeah, I probably confuse people across the board with my <laughs> introduction of my views of God's living outside the limits of times. That that would be a fun episode. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Um, it, it was it was great. I loved it. Um, Hope you enjoyed it as well, uh, listening on. Um, Once again, uh, facebook.com slash APT podcast. Like, share, and subscribe. And until next time, see you. Peace. Here I am.